It's autumn in Europe, and with Halloween on the horizon, it's the season for bumps in the night. If you've been praying for thrills, St Maud is an answer. Director Rose Glass spoke to me for the Monocle Weekly. I'm Augusta Machilari. Welcome. St Maud is a bone-chilling exploration of devotion, mental health and illness. It follows the titular Maud, a devout palliative care nurse who finds her prayers to God meeting a louder-than-usual response. As she becomes convinced that salvation is her vocation, she finds herself coming up against a more earthly resistance. It's a chilling debut. I caught up with director Rose Glass to learn more. I began by asking how her time at the UK's foremost film school, the NFTS, informed her filmmaking. But first, let's hear a clip from the film. Dear God, your presence graces the air, and soon everyone will see. Hi, are you Maud? Yes, hi. It takes nothing special to mop up after the dying. You're prettier than the last one. But to save a soul, that's quite something. Bless Amanda's body and bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness. When you pray, do you get a response? Oh, it's like he's physically in me. Inevitably, I think when you try and teach any creative subject, it's always a tricky thing to do. I learned a lot of, you know, for instance, like working with actors, I learned a lot of great tools whilst at film school about sort of like ways you can phrase things and whatever but I think particularly when you're learning and a student and obviously really nervous about getting stuff right maybe you sort of listen to all the advice a little bit too or maybe I did too much anyway anyway some of those things I found out personally I needed to sort of unlearn a little bit and sort of loosen up so I did I did find that I in the sort of few years after graduating like whenever possible I tried to keep shooting little sort of experimental non-narrative no budget kind of things with basically no story no actors nothing and just sort of have try and get back a little bit more into the mindset of playing around and trying stuff out which is much more how filmmaking felt when I first got into it when I was a teenager and then you're just doing stuff to sort of entertain yourself and your friends and the great thing about doing St Maud is that and I think me and Morvith have both said this to each other that we both found that the, the feel and sort of tone of the shoot was a little bit more like that which is great that said, in terms of coming out of the NFTS, I think one of the main things it's wonderful for is, or any film school, is just being able to try stuff out and fuck up in a safe environment. I mean, there's some, you know, there's stuff that I made at the film school, which I probably wouldn't show to anybody. But if I hadn't done it, then, you know, there's, there's so many mistakes, basically, that I made during shorts, which is probably the same for everybody, that, that I learned from and then tried to address those things so it didn't happen on St Maud. Having kind of done that bit of unlearning then, I know that you started the idea for St Maud well, it started at NFTS, right? It was an idea that you've been kind sort of... Sort of as I was finishing up, yeah. I think it was suddenly like, oh shit, we're all graduating. What next? Oh no, better think of something. How did that kind of, how did that unlearning plus that kind of building the script, building the story of St Maud, what was the interplay there between those two things? The idea I came up with when I was at NFTS was just a really basic version of sort of kind of what the film ended up being. I started off thinking it'd be fun to do a film that was set in a woman's head and the main focus of it would be her relationship with a voice in her head. So initially that was, it was very much going to be a two-hander between Maud and God and God was going to be a voice that you were sort of going to hear chatting to her the whole time and a little bit like Scarlett Johansson and her, that kind of thing. But it starts to feel a bit gimmicky quite quickly and I started to get a bit more interested in wondering what her relationships with, you know, the real people in her life were like. At first, it didn't really occur to me to distinguish whether or not the voice in her head was quote unquote real. 
or, you know, is this God or is this a hallucination? And then graduated and then it was probably a couple of years of just like doing, you know, working regular jobs and kind of working on St. Maud idea on the side. And it all kind of, I felt like I sort of learnt to write whilst writing the script could sort of been focusing on directing so much. Was it important to you that your kind of first film be a project that you'd written? Yeah, I don't think I ever thought about doing it another way. I've always written my own short films, short scripts. But having said that, I've never really thought of myself as as a writer or like a writer-writer. I don't, apart from writing scripts, I don't just love writing for the sake of it, if you see what I mean. And I guess maybe I'm more of a control freak than I'd like to like to admit to myself. So when I come up with it all, I figured that would just be the most straightforward thing to do. Then maybe I regret, I think towards the end of the process, I'm sure I said at least once, like, I'm never doing this again. I'm never writing something myself again. Because it does get quite, I don't know, writing full time was a was a weird shift to get used to once it sort of actually happened and once we were in development film four. I mean, very exciting, of course, to be able to do that for the first time. But um, yeah, you inevitably spend a lot of time by yourself in your head, kind of getting a bit freaked out and going, oh, no, this doesn't make sense. What have I done? It's funny that you say you're not a writer because there's so much to unpack in the film. But one of the things that has stuck with me the most about it is that it's a real cliche to say that death is like the last taboo. But I don't think that makes it any less true. We have a real cultural squeamishness looking at how people die. Not necessarily in films where people die in all sorts of terrible ways, kind of um, every 10 minutes. But, you know, really scrutinising the, the days, the weeks leading up to death. And Maud is a palliative care nurse. Her character is a palliative care nurse. This sort of core relationship at the heart of the film, apart from the one between herself and God, I suppose, is between mm. her and her, her ward. You say that you're not a writer, but like it's so acutely observed it's you engage so deeply with what is such a challenging thing to look at I really you know I couldn't look away but it was quite painful in places and I wondered whether you know that came out of did you spend time talking to palliative care nurses what what experience did you bring to bear on on writing that very little to be honest I have no experience of working as a nurse and I, I didn't speak to any palliative care nurses I have to confess it was sort of all imagination plus a lot of googling I think and I think the only nurse I spoke to was sort of a friend of a friend who provided me essentially with the inspiration for the the mysterious traumatic event that you see happens to Maud during the film. But apart from that, I think it was just probably spending too much time thinking over every bit of it. And I think probably maybe that's the thing of first time films as well. This you, you feel the pressure so much, particularly, you know, I've wanted to do this since I was about 11 or 12 or something. So it's kind of there's this feeling of I mustn't waste a single moment on screen and just overthinking every single bit. Um, but I'm glad you found it painful. That's, that's, that's fun. I think, it's, I think it's kind of healthy maybe to not look away from the ugly, scary things in life. But in terms of the palliative care thing, I, I don't know, and, and sort of coming to death, like, you know, like anybody, I probably worry about all that kind of thing, and, and the idea of death is terrifying. But particularly with the Amanda character, I kind of, and I guess both of them, the idea of having a nurse character and someone who's ill and dying. I just felt like a lot of the time in cinema, you see those kind of characters sort of treated a little bit, I don't know, patronisingly is the right word, but a little bit kind of put on a pedestal or something. Like, oh, isn't it beautiful and wonderful? And I personally found it quite fun having characters like this be pretty horrible to each other and <laughs> make pretty terrible life choices and and not just kind of fade out of things peacefully. When we talk about this sort of, faith that Maud has is super anachronistic to me certainly coming from a really secular background living in 
a secular sort of community in a big city, I have very little access to anyone who even touches that sort of medieval belief. And I guess I only see it in art. So I was wondering how you, whether art, whether that kind of came to inform and and, what, and whose paintings maybe you were looking at that came to inform this sort of shared world that you created for the film to take place in? Yeah, I mean, with the Blake stuff, I figured that was, uh, I mean, he's not an artist or a person that I sort of was in, in any way an expert on then or now, but I have a sort of a deep love for his artwork. And when I was writing the script, I did a lot of writing in libraries and found myself procrastinating by just poring over a lot of all these books I found of his of his works and a lot of things that he wrote. I, I, I found myself thinking, ah, damn, if only Maud had read this stuff, then maybe she'd be able to have a slightly sort of more healthy way of thinking about her perceived faith and in a slightly less self-flagellating kind of way. You know, he was one for saying that, you know, essentially there's no such thing as good and evil. They're all just different energies, if you see what I mean. So taking all the sort of moral, pious judgment stuff out of it. And I figured that Amanda was the kind of person who probably might have a lot of art books lying around the place. And it's her little way of sort of trying to reach out to Maud and connect with her faith, even as a secular person. So sort of going to what you said. So, yeah, I think she hoped that maybe Maud would actually read some of the stuff in the book along with the images. But I think, <laughs> I think Maud just sees the fire and brimstone and is like, oh, great. Yes, art and images and the look of it is kind of where I start off with the film. I think even before I wrote a treatment or the script or stuff, I'd be creating mood boards and you know, doing, doing image research and stuff like that. I must say I'm terrible at remembering names of people and I just seem to collect and save a ton of images from all over the place. I never bothered to learn who painted them. I know a lot of Henry Fuseli stuff I really liked. A lot of gothic paintings of people emerging from total blackness and darkness. So I, I said that a lot to Ben on DOP. I was like, I want everybody emerging from the shadows and it'd be dead mysterious. There seems to be this kind of emerging school of filmmaking, which suits me very well as a viewer because I love it and find it sort of endlessly fascinating. I think about things like The Wailing or um, I mm, guess The Witch. That. These films that take myths, folklore, traditions of the past and they kind of take them at face value and use that as a framework to explore kind of extreme emotional states the ecstatic for example and it seems like that condition that these anachronistic sort of frameworks are used to access again is something that doesn't really exist in in day-to-day life what drew you to that to kind of looking into not you know not making up a boogeyman but rather looking into our shared kind of cultural memory to dredge up and sort of, and yeah, take at face value these things of the past, which which offered people in the past an insight into, into the world that they were living in. One of the starting points for coming up with Maud, or certainly one of the things I started to think about as I was sort of initially working on the story, was the fact of how big a part society's perceptions, society's perception of things, depending on what time the thing is happening in, how big an effect that has so it's a very unarticulate way of saying it. basically it occurred to me that it's, it's pretty obvious that if somebody like Maud had lived you know thousands of years ago then perhaps she would have got quite a different reception from people if she said that she was speaking to God maybe in a way she may well have been taken more seriously and had a better time of it and equally I mean I said this in a few interviews but then I started reading a bit about Joan of Arc and the fact that there are some sort of contemporary psychologists nowadays who think she might have had this particular quite obscure type of epilepsy, which is accompanied by ecstatic seizures, which basically means before the seizure, you have 
quite vivid hallucinations, feelings of intense euphoria and often audio hallucinations. And apparently Dostoevsky had them as well and he kind of wrote about them, but basically this feeling of being connected to something incredible and divine and ecstatic. Anyway, so some people reckon that maybe that's what Joan of Arc had and, and every time she described speaking to God, she was essentially having these kind of ecstatic seizures. Maybe, I mean, this is all theory. But, you know, perhaps that's how you make sense of 13 or 14-year-old girl or however old she was leading an army. But basically, whether or not she was really speaking to God or whether or not it was some obscure kind of neurological condition, the experience for her as a person is exactly the same, which is what I found quite interesting. And yeah, it's a very roundabout way of saying, I, I guess, like, I'm, I'm not a religious person. And, you know, I generally lean on the side of thinking that it seems obvious that a lot of Bible stories or sort of older myths and these kind of things you mention are humans' way of trying to understand things that we can now explain with science in quite a lot of cases, which I agree with. But I don't know, maybe particularly after making this film, I kind of feel that doesn't mean we should discount these experiences and that potentially there are still plenty of things that people experience within human mind, which we can't quite explain. That's not to say that once we haven't, and, and even once we are in a position to be able to explain certain things, I don't know, that doesn't mean that they're invalid. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I kind of, <laughs> I think that you're right. Like Adam Curtis sort of seems to have been saying in different interviews and in different documentaries for a while that one of the big kind of holes at the heart of contemporary Western civilization is spirituality and like this kind yeah. of void in the metaphysical, I guess, a bit. And, yeah. you know, and then I, I suppose I, I thought about that a lot watching Maud there's that line that really cuts through the film which is about her loneliness and it's mm. so striking and 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 I suppose it does speak to this this like potential that religion or faith or some avatar of faith has to kind of to help people in those moments right but that it's not a totally and I think it just sort of shows that there's um that's the reason that I wanted Maud's relationship with God to be expressed somehow physically so that's why she has all these kind of sort of quasi-orgasmic moments because I didn't want it to be some, some sort of like lofty intellectual abstract kind of connection she's got with God. It's like, no, it's a real sort of transcendent physical kind of feeling or physical, spiritual mashup. Because I figured that even secular audiences, which probably most people who watch the film aren't going to be particularly religious, just probability. But I feel that even if you're not, even if you don't think you believe in God, then but the idea of wanting to somehow transcend yourself and connect with something that much bigger than you and which connects all of us is very universal and I don't know maybe I'm reaching a bit now but I kind of feel like it's a similar it's a kind of sim it has some kind of weird connection to the feeling that people chase you know if you take drugs or if you're kind of like on hallucinogens or kind of sexual ecstasy or sometimes even taking exercise that kind of, you know that sort of heightens feeling of I don't know what it is but I felt like that whatever that spiritual transcendent expression is definitely lacking from mainstream society now and I think it's still a deeply human thing to want it in some way we just keep finding different ways to and I guess maybe in the past obviously religion was just a more widely accepted way of tapping into all that kind of stuff and in the I'm not saying that we need to go back to like religion governing things because I don't think it's got all the answers but at the moment it's being replaced almost by like, the biggest sort of connector at the moment is sort of social media or something like that and that's worrying. Maud should have gone to Bergheim is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Exactly. Seriously. No, I completely... Kind of opportunity, a bit of communion of a different <laughs> sort. Yeah, man. 
I just want to see you loosen up. I've got more important things on my mind. <laughs> There's my little safe. Maud, he isn't real. <laughs> Nothing worthwhile comes easily. The good girls go. Rose Glass there, talking to me for the Monocle Weekly. St. Maud is out on general release, the perfect film for thought-provoking chills as the evenings draw in. I've been Augusta Machilari. This interview was edited by Jack Jewers. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>